Today Does Not Compute is brought to you by Linode. Whether you're spinning up a simple virtual machine for your personal site or want to build out a big infrastructure for your next app backend, Linode has you covered. They help you deploy and manage SSD-backed servers in just seconds. Of course, you can pick which of their eight data centers you want your machines to live in, how much computing power you need them to have, and your favorite Linux distribution. You get full root access, which means you can run pretty much any software on these boxes, from personal VPN and Git servers to Docker containers or even game servers like Minecraft. Their servers start at just $10 per month for fully SSD-backed servers running Intel Xeon E5 processors over a 40 gigabit network. This is real server-grade stuff. Linode also has some really cool add-on services, like automated backups and Longview to help you track detailed system metrics. If you head over to linode.com slash doesnotcompute and sign up with the offer code doesnotcompute20, they'll give you $20 in free credit. Our thanks to Linode for sponsoring the show, and remember to sign up with offer code doesnotcompute20. So actually, our first topic today, interestingly enough, is about design, not development. Yeah, so a uh, friend of the show, John Gold, we had him on a, as a guest a while back, and we talk about him frequently, but uh, he recently wrote a blog post called Declarative Design Tools, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And along with the blog post, he released, what is it, sort of like a preview of this thing he's been working on called Renee. Yeah, and before you look at Renee at all, I would really recommend reading through this blog post. It is... Very, very well written. Um, he did a great job outlining the reasons behind why he built this tool and what you should be looking to get out of it. And also, of course, what its limitations are right now. I saw a early demo of this tool called Renee several months ago when he was just first working on it. And what he's now released is very similar to that version. I know he's built a lot more out behind the scenes that he hasn't started to release yet. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see kind of where he goes with that. Yeah, so I did the opposite. I immediately clicked on Renee instead of going to the blog post and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. You know, this is, it looks nice. Uh, and then I went back and looked at the blog post and I started reading through and it it made sense on a whole nother level. He he basically talks about how, you know, how design tools, there's, you know, there's been some new innovations coming out, but fundamentally most of them work pretty much the same way they have since the Mac came out. You know, I took this blog post and showed it to one of our designers, Zach, and asked him what his thoughts were. And he he thought it was really cool. So Zach's been going through a really monotonous phase in a project right now where he's having to explore different uh, type of graphics treatments. And, and basically there's lots of repetition where he has to copy and paste and he has to kind of do this all by hand, right? So he'll come up with a treatment, a styling for like header and some paragraphs and some colors. And then he'll make a new artboard and make a new treatment. He'll make another new artboard and make a new treatment. And so he's basically having to go through and do this all by hand, right? So he'll have to click on each piece, change it, copy and paste it, change it. And it ends up kind of becoming this monotonous, really repetitive thing. And to me, that sounds like really boring work. So I showed him Renee and I was like, so the idea here is that it kind of takes the monotony away from you and it allows you to focus on higher level concepts and actually designing and not the kind of production work. Right. At its core, the difference between Renee and a standard design program is that instead of having an attributes panel for an element where you just change what that element looks like, in the attributes panel, you can actually select multiple items for each property. So for example, if you have a button, you can click on the button and say, okay, I want this to be set in Helvetica. 
and I want it to be set in Proxima Nova, and I want it to be set in TISA. And what Renee will do in that case is it will actually just show you all three of those options side by side. It'll give you a three up. And then if you change a second item, if you change the paragraph font, it will actually show you that you have two paragraph fonts now and three button styles. So it'll actually show you six total variants. But all you've done is change two items in a dropdown. You haven't actually had to go through and manually recreate those artboards and edit the individual properties of each one. Renee is programmatically using set theory, which he goes into in the in the blog post. But Renee is going through and saying, okay, here's all the variations you want. Just look at it, pick which ones you think are going to work out and narrow it back down. So you kind of expand your number of options, glance at them, see what feels good, and then bring it back down to the ones that you like. And then you continue refine that process to refine your design over time. Right. So you spend less time doing this yourself and more time describing what you want to happen. Uh, and the interface is really intuitive. You know, we end up using these tagging interfaces quite often in, or I've, you know, I've had to make a bunch of them in my career so far. And it just seems to lend itself to quick iterations, which obviously is a goal, right? So if you're in that kind of exploratory phase, if you spend more time actually thinking about what you want to see versus manually doing the work, I think you'll come out with a better product because it just makes it easier to see more iterations. And Renee does a great job of that. Also, one thing that I really liked was in the blog post, he talks about imperative versus declarative tools. And I mean, even the title of the post is called Declarative Design Tools. And the main difference is that with imperative tools, you tell the computer how you want something to be done versus declarative tools, you tell the computer what you want to happen. So in the first case, say you're using Sketch and you're working through permutations, it's imperative because you actually have to go through and do most of the work yourself. Whereas when we're using Renee, it's declarative because you click on an input and say, I want to see three fonts and I want to see two line heights. And it makes the three permutations for you automatically. The classic example in programming of declarative stuff would be SQL. You don't actually say how the computer should find the data you're looking for. You just describe what the data you're looking for is, and it figures out how to find it. This is taking that same concept and just applying it to design instead of to an actual programming language. I think that's really awesome. So I last episode, I think it was, I talked about brunch quite a bit, and brunch is a very declarative tool where you describe what you want as an outcome, and it just takes care of everything else for you. And as a result, I save a lot of time. You know, I don't have to spend time configuring my setup each time, or I don't have to clone a repo and then change a bunch of settings every time. All I do is make a file, change maybe three lines, and the thing works. And it does everything that I normally do, live reloading, linting, minification, everything. Uh, even, you know, even handles module bunding, like I would usually use Browserify for that, but Brunch just has it built in. So I think it's really great that we're starting to see more tools like this. I mean, maybe there are more, I'm just unaware of them, but more tools that are focused on smoothing out that workflow for designers. Because I, I mean, I've mentioned it before, but I went to design school and I used to, I started out in the industry as a designer, making a living doing freelance design. And I spent a lot of my time doing pretty repetitive things, whether it's, you know, copying, pasting, or doing lots of manual work. Pretty much every programmer wants to automate stuff like that, right? We, we don't want to spend time doing the same thing over and over again. So if we, if we can isolate a task that can be automated, we pretty much try to do that. And it seems like with Renee, it's kind of the same idea where, you know, it takes a set of things that you need to get done and it allows you to do it much faster. So you can spend more time thinking creatively and doing what you actually get paid to do, which is think creatively. 
So yeah, at its current in its current form, it's it's pretty slimmed down. There's just a few examples that you can use, but I am really looking forward to seeing what comes next. Yeah, and it, if I'm not mistaken, hopefully this isn't a secret or anything, but I believe the one of the goals here is to allow you to just kind of write your own JSX that you can import as templates into Renee and then actually export it once it's fully designed uh, directly back into your app. So in some ways, it's actually a design tool that lets designers create usable code and hand it directly off to developers. So it solves that translation part of the design process as well, moving from something that's designed to something that's actually real and exists in your browser. See, I think that's pretty great. You know, it's taking something that's becoming more of a standard like JSX and sort of making it easy for a designer to create something that's clean and usable for a developer. I think that's amazing because obviously there's a lot of friction, or in most cases, there's a lot of friction between the handoff from design to development. There's lots of gray areas there. So, I mean, if that happens, it sounds like it could smooth lots of things out for a lot of people. So a couple days ago, we were talking a bit about CSS and you said, I'm going to do it, Paul. I'm going to do it. I'm going to release it. And I didn't really know what you were talking <laughs> about. But apparently, Sean, it's it seems that you've built some sort of CSS framework or are building one. Right. Uh, so me and uh, a couple other devs that I work with, Chris Griffith, who's super talented, uh, his title is actually designer at Octopus, but he ends up doing a ton of front end, uh, which I'm okay with because he's really good at it and it means I don't have to do it. And... Uh, Josiah and Nick have helped out with it a little bit, um, but we've kind of jumped on this whole functional programming train or functional CSS train, and we've noticed that slowly over time, it's kind of it's made us faster and more consistent. Like our our product and products are more consistent, and so we figured, you know, why not build one for ourselves because then we know it intimately. So previously, I was using Base CSS a lot, and Base CSS is a really great tool. It's just difficult to customize it, uh, or it, for me, it was difficult to customize it because it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with SAS at all. Uh, and pretty much everything we do is SAS-based. So the idea was to build a few uh, SAS functions that spit out a bunch of utility classes that I used, or that I was used to using from base CSS, and that's kind of how it started. So what what are your goals with this? What What is this even called? Actually? Oh, yeah. So originally it was called Swell, um, but now we renamed it to Decent, uh, Decent.scss, because it's decent. It's not great. It's decent. And as most CSS is, and uh, our my goal is just to make it as easy as possible to customize this thing. So I mentioned with using base CSS or tachyons or something like that. Um, I think base CSS version seven used to have a web interface where you can change uh, variables and customize it that way. But now I think you have to use something called base plate, and that uses post CSS. So it doesn't really fit into our our tool chain at all. And our goal is to obviously have the utility classes, you know, have that the functional style, um, but make it really easy to customize. So a lot of designs that we get, they're they're pretty different, right? Um, they they might have different grids or different spacings or different ratios. Uh, so what we did was we took all of those numbers uh, and we extracted them to variables. And so all you have to do is define those variables up top, and then require the CSS in or import the CSS in and you're good to go. Ideally, this this framework, I guess, would basically bend itself to fit your exact specifications. So what kind of things are you providing with Decent? I'm assuming you've got some concept of a grid and things like margin and padding utilities. Is there any notion of typography stuff? Yeah. So as it stands right now, it has pretty much everything that I need. So I'm actually using it on Knight Foundation, which is the biggest project I've ever worked on. 
Uh, we used it on Design Collective, which shipped recently. We used it on maybe two or three more projects on top of that. And after a few projects shipped, when we were using it, we decided to kind of pull it out and put it and make it into its own thing. So that way we might actually spend some time and it's not just kind of this code that gets copied from one project to the next. But out of the box, we have display utilities, flexbox utilities, grid utilities, like you said, typography, white space, margin and padding stuff. I also added a bunch of things that might that most everybody might not use, but I have been using them a little bit in certain projects. Like uh, I have some utilities for widths, setting max width, min width, min height, max height, etc. We also have utilities for positioning, so absolute, fixed, relative. And then one of my favorite things is actually an interaction file, which has uh, certain hover styles. And so basically some interactions that Chris put together that looked really nice. It just makes it really easy to apply those anywhere you want them, which is one of my favorite things because I, I'm kind of like on the back end of front end and back end if that makes sense. So I'm not necessarily a designer, but I do write a lot of CSS and JavaScript, but interaction and making things pretty isn't necessarily my forte. So Chris came in and designed these neat interactions and threw them into utility classes that I could just use. So how do you decide what goes in to decent versus what goes into the CSS for an actual project? Because that seems like it would be a bit of a a bit of a tightrope walk since you're maintaining both the project as well as the framework that you're using style the project? That's a pretty good question. And I don't know that I have a concrete answer for that yet. Uh, so decent, for example, actually, I think maybe it was yesterday, I added the widths file, their widths module, uh, because a couple other projects didn't need it. Uh, and I did for when I was working on, so I just tossed it in there. Uh, so the idea here is that you don't necessarily use a compiled file if you're using SAS, you can just pull a file in as you need it. So that's why I've been kind of just throwing everything into here. And in the docs, I just say, whatever you need, just pull it in. If you don't need it, then don't require it. And obviously your file sizes will be smaller because of that. But yeah, I don't know, sometime down the road, I might have some sort of build tool where you can have it compile CSS for you or one CSS file and you can pick and choose your modules. But for now, I'm just kind of tossing it all in there and just saying, hey, pull in what you need and don't use what you don't need. Sure. And I guess that is kind of one of the big advantages of using something like SCSS, where the tools are in many, many projects. And even if they're not in a project, they're very easy to pull in. SCSS is pretty widely known and people understand how to work with it. We've been using SAS for years, you know, and pretty much every project is SAS based. Uh, so that's why we chose to go with SAS. Um, one of our devs, Nick, is a really big fan of Stylus. And I actually really like Stylus a lot. It's really pretty. It's uh, more along the lines of CoffeeScript. Feeling like when you're writing a Stylus, it feels more like you're writing CoffeeScript where you don't have to worry about semicolons and braces and stuff like that. And it's, it's just really powerful language. A lot of our current ongoing projects that are longer projects are SAS-based. So that's why we went with SAS this time around. But Sure. Well, and I mean, especially as a Rails shop, like that's going to be natural for you because that's just the default. Yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing is that we, we've been talking more and more about, you know, projects coming in that are Rails apps going API client route as opposed to uh, asset pipeline rendered Rails app. And so that might, in, down the road, that might not be as much of a thing. So we might opt to go the stylus route or something like that. But for now, SAS just makes sense. But for now, if you are into using SAS and want to give this a look, it's a decent-css uh, or decent-scss on npm. You can find it there or it's on the Octopus Creative GitHub. Check it out. Uh, file issues, pull requests are encouraged and accepted. Wink, wink. So yeah, you know, uh, 
I'm not a perfect programmer, so I expect to find some some dragons in there. But yeah, I mean, if you want to check it out, go ahead. So you mentioned that you're moving more towards API-based Rails apps, where all Rails does is serve out JSON and maybe handle like some admin stuff, I'd imagine. And then you actually just have a web app that consumes that API. I know you were doing this on Knight Foundation because actually that was one of the last things I set up before I left. How's that been working out? Uh, good so far. Uh, Knight is the first major one that I've done with that. It's not out yet. It will be in the next couple of months. Uh, but the developer experience has been pretty okay, mainly because of the difference, just the t- complete separation of concerns, right? So any client, any sort of front-end logic is completely in a different code base. It's in a different repository, has its own separate issues. It's completely isolated from any of the admin and API code, which I'm enjoying a lot. So on the front end, uh, they have some people testing it out. There's a bug, submit a bug report, and it goes directly to the front end repository. And it makes issue management for me really easy. And also when having multiple uh, programmers working on a project, um, just I has been rocking out some API stuff and I've been working on the front end and there's been no conflicts at all because we're working on totally separate projects. I think for me, one of the big benefits that I see is that you can ship a very lean package to the front end in a full-blown Rails app, but I think it's a lot more effort than it is if you just have a static HTML site that is a JavaScript app. I think having the API client split out in that way makes it a lot easier to ship a very lightweight site to end users and something that'll just load really quickly and be very responsive to them. That decoupling just allows you to think about things in a different way, I feel like as a developer. Right. Well, there's less concessions that have to be made. So the last couple of kind of hybrid Rails apps that I made where a lot of things, a lot of the front end is JavaScript, but it's still kind of the same, the same project. I always had to end up doing things like that didn't make me feel necessarily great, but I had to do it to make the stuff work. So it seems like if you want to go the Rails server route, you or the Rails rendered uh, route, you can totally do that. But there's some concessions that have to be made when you want to do spa-like things. Um, now, I'm not like a Turbolinks master or anything like that. And I've seen people saying, hey, you can pretty much do all the same stuff by utilizing Turbolinks. But I just haven't really, you know. So when splitting this out into a client and API separately... I just haven't run into that because it's totally isolated. And the other thing is that, you know, in building out the API and the logic, you don't have to worry about, you just send JSON. I mean, it's the response is really simple, right? You do all your logic and you just send JSON back and that's it. Uh, so for me, it made things a lot simpler on that side too, because I didn't have to worry about sending out certain types of data Uh, I didn't have to worry about responding to HTML versus responding to JSON requests differently. I didn't have to worry about any of that. I just respond with JSON. Any any formatting, anything like that is just delegated to the client. It's just not the Rails API's responsibility at all. I've found that building out Rails APIs that serve JSON, what it kind of does for me is is two things. First of all, it really pushes me in the skinny controllers direction. It feels very natural to have skinny controllers when you're just serving back JSON. You're doing something very simple. You're just pulling it out of pulling stuff out of a database and then serving it out. The other thing that really strikes me when I do this is just how resty it makes everything. It feels like there's no other way to do things. Everything's just naturally rest because you have, you know, your crud. You got to be able to create things, you have to be able to delete them, you have to be able to update them. And you have to be able to view them. And then you just extrapolate that out. Whereas when you're trying to bundle 
serving a UI on top of actually serving data, sometimes things get kind of mixed up and jumbled more than they really should. So it keeps things very pure, which I like. Exactly. And on top of that, it's a huge value sell to your clients as well. You can say, hey, we're building an API. So if down the road you want to make a mobile app, your API is ready. Just come to us. We'll build you a mobile app. You know, So there's nothing extra that has to be done the mobile app just hits the same API as the desktop and you're good to go, you know? So that's been a huge value add for our clients as well because a lot of people are interested in that. You know, maybe they want to launch an MVP web app and eventually they want to move into mobile and and things of that nature. So for us, we're using the same code base, the same API. And if the client comes back with a mobile app, we don't have to set out building two things again. We just are focused on the mobile app, which I think is great. But with that, having a few APIs under my belt, I'm starting to change how I think about actually building an API or I guess change where the responsibility lies in terms of how, like what data is getting sent to the client and what the client actually asks for. Uh, So on a side project I'm kind of hacking on with a few friends, I decided to give JSON API resource a try, which is a Rails gem. And Previously with APIs, so you have a client and the client has a design. So certain pages need certain pieces of information. And the first couple that I built, the client would go to an endpoint and the API would actually be responsible for putting together all that data. So at that point, the API knows about the design, right? Because it knows what's required on the page and it sends back a key for each essentially collection that's being rendered on the front end. And the farther along I got with that project, I kind of started realizing maybe this isn't the best way to approach things. And the idea behind JSON API resource and JSON API is that you have your resource endpoint. And if you want any related data, you attach that to the request from the client. So say you have a blog post and a blog post might have related blog posts and recent comments and things like that, all all different relationships. And the first example, the API would respond with the blog posts. Also, it would respond with the related posts and comments. But there's an implicit binding there between the front and back end. That's that's kind of where the issue arises is because your API at that point is tailor-made for only that one purpose, just for displaying that page. Precisely. So if a client came and said, we want a mobile app and the design is different, so the blog page doesn't necessarily have comments or it has a different type of relationship, you have to kind of figure out, okay, is it going to be a different version? How are we going to know who's requesting what data and how are we going to send it back without breaking the other client, right? Because obviously we don't want to change the API and then suddenly the website breaks. That'd be really bad. Um, So the JSON API route is you ask for the resource, but you also ask for any tangential data. So you would say like slash blog post slash ID question mark includes maybe comments, related items or something like that. And the API would see that it's requesting for these relational pieces and then just include them in the request. So in that way, your API is completely decoupled from your design. That makes a lot of sense. How's that been working out? Uh, pretty okay so far. I mean, all it's been doing is making me want to go back and reprogram other things, <laughs> which I can't do. But I don't know. It's been it's been working so far. No, I, I hear a lot of people when I say JSON API, they'll, they kind of cringe a little bit and they'll say, oh, it works great until it doesn't. Or it works great until it doesn't work how you want it to. But I think I'm kind of okay with that because at this point in my my career, my my level of knowledge with building APIs, I'd rather have strict rules than you know something that's really flexible and allows me to do something that I shouldn't. Yeah, and I feel like JSON API is, generally speaking at least, pretty well fleshed out at this point. 
they have a solution for pretty much all of the the standard issues that you would run into when building out an API and stuff, for example, like JSON API resource, where it actually solves a pre-existing problem in a, in a nice new way. Now things are just going in the URL and every client, since clients obviously build their own URLs, gets to decide exactly what data it needs. So only the client is aware of the design. And I think that's such a, that just seems like a very healthy way to build APIs. Right. And upfront, it seems like more work because JSON API is very verbose. There's lots of things that come back in the response, but I think that's actually a blessing because the initial reason why I wanted to pick JSON API resource was because I could make the response from the server standardized. So every response is going to be formatted the same way, just the data is differently. The attributes key is different. Uh, the type key is different, but everything else is the same. So in building my clients, I could then make a view components that consume that standard and suddenly they're reusable across projects because the API will have a standard that responds in a standard way. Then I can use components across all my apps, which as a developer, that's a huge thing because now I have to I can work less, <laughs> right? I can spend more time on Fallout 4 or something. Uh, but also as a developer that works on a team, if there's a standard there, then we're all abiding by the same rules. We're building things in the same way. We're all more productive and less confused in general. Thanks again to Linode for sponsoring today's episode of Does Not Compute. They make it incredibly easy and fast to create private virtual machines for whatever you need. Their servers start at only $10 a month, and they've got hourly billing with monthly caps, so you only pay for the resources you use. Linode also provides some great add-on services like their node balancers, which make it super easy to scale your server infrastructure on demand. To learn more, take a look at linode.com slash does not compute. Sign up using the offer code does not compute 20 to get $20 in free Linode credit to get you started. Please rate and review does not compute and other spec shows on iTunes. It's one of the simplest, easiest ways to help spread the word about the show. Just I listen to that and be like, oh, you'll like it.